Welcome. I'm Chris O'Connor, the principal investigator of the Heart Failure Collaboratory, and we're here with the Heart Failure Collaboratory podcast called Heart of the Matter. And this is our opportunity to do a deeper dive into the concepts that we discussed in some of our recent think tanks. And we're very fortunate to have Janet Witties lead our statistical considerations annual meeting of the Heart Failure Collaboratory. It's been going on for several years now, and we got into some really challenging topics. And the topic that we began with, and Vanessa Bloomer is not here, led us in that conversation, is estimates. And what is an estimate? And before we jump into that topic for today, let's just go around the room and introduce ourselves to our audience. Janet? Hi, I'm Janet Wittes. I'm a statistician. I've been involved in lots of clinical trials over the years. And right now I'm just consultant. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Mitch? I'm Mitch Sotka. I'm a heart failure and transplant cardiologist in the Nova Health System in Virginia. Bill Abraham? Yeah, Bill Abraham, a heart failure and transplant cardiologist at The Ohio State University. And Eric Leifer? Hi, I'm Eric Leifer. I'm a statistician in the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. So we got the team here. We got clinicians, clinical trialists, and statisticians. And Janet, this concept of estimate has been around for a while. I feel like we've had it in there, but I never felt like it we put our arms around it this time and it said, wow, I didn't know we could talk for three hours about estimates. The story of estimates is actually kind of interesting. We have in statistics, estimates, estimates, estimators, and they're all different from each other. And it's very confusing. The reason for developing this concept of estimate is that in many clinical trials, you're trying to figure out what you're trying to estimate has not been clear. I think in cardiology and in heart failure trials, it pretty much has been clear. And this is, it's not such a problem in your trials, in heart failure trials, but in trials of symptoms, trials of short-term trials where you're measuring continuous outcomes, how you feel, what your pain is and so forth, rather than hard clinical outcomes the way heart failure trials are usually designed, what you're trying to estimate from these trials and what you actually calculate can be very different. And so what an estimate is, is a disciplined way of saying, I have a trial and at the end of the trial, I want to calculate a number and I want that number to represent something that I understand. And it's that thing that I want to understand that is the estimate. You do the study, you do a calculation, you get an estimate, that's a number, like my hazard ratio is 1.2, and that should give you the best sense that the trial has given you of what that value is in the population at large. And so the framework of estimate is a way of disciplining yourself. What your study gets at is what it's trying to get at. So it's sort of setting the stage, the roadmap, but was, didn't we do this with SAPs, this statistical and analytical plan, and that big document that you and Eric would create for us when we did clinical trials seemed like it had the estimate in there. And I'm going to ask Eric to comment on that. It's, is estimate just a, another fancy word to hover over the SAP? No, I would say that certainly we've been thinking, whenever we design a clinical trial, we're thinking about the questions we want to answer. And so it has always been there in some regard, but 
I think having a sentence or a paragraph in your protocol now to say, this is really the question we're trying to answer. It also speaks to things. How do we measure things? How do we think about patients who might cross over to another treatment or who might not adhere or who might just drop out for other reasons? How do we handle that sort of data? And that data always comes up in trials. So if we have our estimate, we say, this is what we're really trying to understand. For instance, are we trying to understand what happens if patients start off on a treatment and then might switch over and we're not worried, and then we're just gonna say, well, they started it and we're just gonna follow them from there, or if we're gonna stop following them at the time they cross over, we really wanna have a much purer comparison this really forces us to think about what is the exact comparison that we're really interested in making. And so there's verbiage in estimate. And then when you get to the estimates, that's when sort of the statistics come in that we, that Jen and I went to school for in terms of writing down formulas to say how we're gonna answer a particular question. But the estimate really tries to understand what we wanna go after in terms of how patients might behave during the trial. That's really well said, both Jan and Eric. So, Bill, you design a lot of trials. You've run a lot of trials. Is a concept that is moving forward to be clear about the rules of engagement, to have that estimate actually written in the methods of your publication? Yeah, I think that it is, and I think that it's important because in some ways I look at this perhaps very simplistically as also being a statement by those who are designing trials of what might represent really an important difference, an important outcome for patients, right? It's not just about statistical significance, and we may get into a discussion of p-values, uh, but I think it's also a discussion of what are we trying to do for our patients? What are we trying to accomplish here? And if you look at some trials, they enroll very large number of patients are often overpowered. They have some treatment effect baked into the assumptions, but they might reach a significant p-value with a treatment effect that is really less than impressive. And so I think really trying to have a statement going forward for not only statistical significance, but what we believe these results may mean to patients is really important. And I think it's somehow in this concept that we're talking about today. And Mitch, when you look at, you've looked at a number of clinical trials and efforts, development programs, how often are people not putting forth the estimate? I think that the key here is that the framework for the estimate is frequently used when you talk about regulatory submission or you talk about putting together an SAP, but it didn't always happen that way. And it gives a a clear language on what to use and sponsor putting together a trial, put together what they think the estimate is, but then it allows us to discuss the difference between perhaps what they think the estimate is and what they're truly measuring. For an example, I want to use the recent colonoscopy paper that was in the New England Journal of Medicine, where the title of the manuscript is Effective Colonoscopy Screening on Risk of Colorectal Cancer and Related Death. But the intervention is not about screening, actually. The intervention is about mailing a letter to people to tell them <laughs> to get their colonoscopy screening testing and really show that that wasn't very effective, but it's being interpreted as that colonoscopies are not effective screening. The estimate <laughs> was not colonoscopy, it was mailing a letter and what the effect that has on the colorectal cancer death. And so the estimate framework really gives that language to be able to very precisely discuss what you're intending to measure and how you want to interpret it up front so that everyone can be in agreement before the trial is undertaken. And it's everything, Janet. It's the population. Is it intention to treat? Is it 
on treatment analysis. How do we handle the crossovers? As Eric said, what about censoring and the follow-up? It's putting all that in there. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I'm glad you mentioned censoring because one of the things that can happen, Eric talked about crossover, which means you're randomized to one group and you go into the other. But you can also have, you're on a treatment and then something happens to you and you get a different treatment not one of the two that are in the study, you get some surgery or you get a drug completely different from what's being studied. How do you handle that? Those are the kinds of things that I think, yes, there were huge SAPs, statistical analysis plans, sometimes 150 pages. But when you looked at the details of what the calculated estimate was and you said, okay, if I calculate this thing, what is it really getting at? Often it wasn't getting at what you think it is. I just read a couple of statistical analysis plans in fields other than cardiology. And this was very recently, within the last few weeks. And they had the estimate framework listed, but their estimate didn't fit. So there's going to be a mm. step where, yes, you use the language. And Chris is exactly right. It's not only what you're trying to estimate, but in whom. Under what circumstances? How are you handling all the things that happen in trials to patients and in life to patients that can make your analysis more complicated and your inference more complicated? And these analysis plans had the language, but not the rigor. And I think yeah. it's take quite a long time for us all to be able to learn how to use this framework in an effective way. That, that is a really good lesson to say that the pieces were all there, but they weren't connected. So we've got to get that estimate right to match that estimate. That's really exciting. Let's quickly turn to one of the components of what we try to measure, Bill, and that's we may have a, a symptom, patient-reported outcome, and we talk about meaningful differences in p-values. And we get twisted around with this. I heard this again in a recent commentary about how could something have such a large p-value or small p-value, and you're claiming that there's no meaningful difference. The Ascend trial with Nasiratide, we studied 9,000 people, very small p-value, very small difference in dyspnea, and people are saying that it wasn't meaningful, and I agree with that. But tell us, how does the world Tease that out. Meaningful difference and a p-value. Yeah, I think, first of all, I'm a great advocate of looking at the totality of data. Clinical trials shouldn't be judged based on a single p-value uh, relative to a primary endpoint. We've got to have the flexibility to understand the totality of the data and what it really means for our patients. What we're looking for with the p-value is sort of a level of certainty uh, in a particular finding, and we can make some judgments about how certain we want to be in regard to what the outcomes are for the patients. I think we should have that flexibility in interpreting clinical trials. But where we actually have, or at least can agree upon by consensus, what represents a clinically meaningful outcome, we should strive to do that. We should include that statement in our protocols and in our statistical analysis plans. And we should look at not only the p-value or statistical significance, but also clinical meaningfulness as well. And just as an example, 
You know, there are two patient-reported sort of endpoints, quality of life instruments or health-related quality of life questionnaires, the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure Questionnaire and the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire. Both of these are included in FDA's medical device development toolbox. Both have been studied extensively and well-validated and they've landed on using anchoring points, other endpoints, either clinical outcomes or other instruments such as a patient global assessment. They've landed on some sort of threshold cutoff for clinical meaningfulness, which turns out to be about five points. So we have trials of 10,000 patients that de demonstrate a very small p-value with a one-point improvement in quality of life score. Is that really meaningful? Then we have smaller trials of several hundred patients that have a p-value that might be 0.049 or even 0.051, but demonstrate a 10-point improvement in quality of life score. I think the way that I would look at those studies and interpret that data are different than what the p-value would indicate. Very well said, Bill. Eric, how do you look at the p-value? Is the totality of information? Does it provide you with any enhanced knowledge of the trial? I mean, the p-value tells you if there is any difference between the two groups. And so if you have a large enough trial, you're usually there'll be some sort of small difference and you'll detect that. But I agree with what Bill was saying, what Janet was saying, that really the p-value needs to be supplemented with both an estimate the, the value of once you've gone through the whole process of figuring out the S-demand, then you get your estimate, as Janet described, where it's your numerical value of your estimate, and you get a confidence interval for the estimate. In, in any, any journal, you'll always see a p-value, and you'll see the estimate and the 95% confidence interval. And that gives you a much better idea as to really what the treatment effect was. So in this trial that you were describing with 9,000 patients, you're gonna find that yes, you had a significant p-value, but once you supplement it with additional information, it might not be so impressive after all. So it's really a totality of evidence question and a p-value always needs to be supplemented with the estimate or the estimate and it's confidence interval. Great take-home lesson there. I couldn't agree more with that. Mitch, you've seen a lot of p-values above 05, below 05. What does it mean to you? I have to say that my biggest issue with the p-value is the way that it is used as a dichotomous reference. So we basically say that if the p is less than 0.05, we say, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And if it's greater than 0.05, we say, oh, it's not. And just like confidence intervals, which I think are more inherently interpretable for people, giving you a range of uncertainty around your treatment effect estimate, your point value, the p-value is not really interpretable in the same way for most people, but it really should be looked at similarly as a continuous measure, right? A smaller p-value should give you relatively more confidence that your result is truly represents a difference in, in an effect size. And a relatively larger p-value, you should be less confident in your results. But from a standpoint of interpretation, should I use this therapeutic for my patients? I think it depends on the totality of evidence, right? It depends on how many patients you have. It's a super rare disease. You're probably not going to be able to really demonstrate a tiny p-value, where if it's a super common disease, you can expect to enroll a lot of patients and be able to clearly demonstrate an effect in maybe just one large trial. So I think that is the way that really p-values are misused. And this 0.05 standard really just needs to be thrown out. Oh, wow. Okay. Janet, you have the last word on p-values. Okay. I would like to say, I would like to turn 
the language around. To the estimate is the cake and the p-value is the icing. We start with the estimate. What is the value and the confidence interval? And then you stick the p-value in to say, <laughs> I believe it or not. Very often we start with the p-value and that's not the important thing to start with. So that's what I want us to do, to turn our language around. We have the estimate and the p-value asks us how much we should believe it. I love that. And I hope you you're advocating for chocolate cake because I love chocolate cake, but I think having that estimate and confidence and thinking about that goes beyond just clinical trials. You go to a restaurant and Janet and I have intersected at some very good restaurants and we say, that meal was good. There's confidence intervals around that. And there's an estimate on that. How good was that meal? So I think it's a mindset. It's a framework and a mindset that we all have to change to think about not a dichotomous world, but a world that is a continuum, biology is a continuum, and we have estimates and confidence around that estimate. So thank you very much. It's been a really intriguing conversation today. This is really a download from our larger think tank meeting. And again, it could go on for hours, which is amazing to talk about estimates and p-values and confidence intervals. But we have to end here. I want to just thank my colleagues for being part of this podcast, Heart of the Matter. And we look forward to you joining our next podcast, which is going to be the dangerous intersection of acute kidney injury and acute heart failure. What does that mean? Thank you. <laughs>